Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15. We'll actually be starting 16. The last paragraph here, 36, really is beginning of, should be the beginning of chapter 16. But let's open with a word of prayer. Leslie? Lord Heavenly Father, thank you for this time to study your word and learn the truth. And uh, give us the grace to follow and be responsible for what we hear and and learn uh, tonight. Bless every listener and the teaching tonight. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. Let's begin tonight by reading this final section of chapter 15. Uh, verses 36 down through 41, and then uh, I'll have some long comments. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. And Barnabas was desirous of taking John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right, thank you. We have been going through the uh, first part of the book of Acts, showing how the plan that Christ revealed to the disciples back in Acts 1 was being systematically fulfilled and how that related to the long awaited and promised restoration of Israel, which would come in Israel's last days and would also, as we just looked at in Acts 15, signify that the time had come to gather the Gentiles in, uh, or the nations, into the kingdom of God. And the key passage that Acts 15 comments on is Amos 9, where it stated to us that in those last days... David's tabernacle would be rebuilt and all men could come and see God. 
and so we've we've talked about that a lot. Now we're going to see a little shift in emphasis. Uh, now we we had Paul's first sermon in great detail back in Acts 13. We've seen a lot of implications of the unfolding of the plan that came together in Acts 15 when they had to have this conference to discuss how these foreigners, foreign-born people who were not uh, Israelites could mingle in with the Judeans uh, in the groups and assemblies and so on. And we're going to see now in the next section of Acts a lot of travel. So it is keeping with the theme, it is in keeping with the plan uh, that Christ laid out in Acts 1, that they would go first to Jerusalem and the regions of Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost uh, parts of the world. And we also saw a theme uh, of the four Ps beginning back in Acts 2, power, preaching, persecution, and parousia. And these four Ps are going to continue uh, in this next section of Acts. The miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to these people to preach the good news that all of the time of God fulfilling all of his promises to Israel and to the nations have arrived. The kingdom has been reestablished. The new king, the heir of David, has been anointed uh, on his throne, which is spiritual in nature, as we demonstrated back in Acts 2 and Acts 3, and, and so on. So we want to kind of set the stage that this preaching and going to the uttermost parts of the earth which have been with us from Acts 1 and Acts 2, are going to continue on now through the book of Acts, and it's going to be the fulfillment of what we call the Great Commission. And this is important to note because most Christians today believe that the Great Commission applies to all of us equally and began on the day of Pentecost and goes until some possibly imminent end of the world and end of the universe. But a proper understanding would have us uh, take a slightly different nuance, that this had to be completed within that generation of people living, the same generation that Christ said that this generation will not pass before some see the kingdom of God coming with power. And and we certainly have seen that coming with power. So there's a there is a uh, uh, urgency to get the word out uh, to the world uh, within this generation, and that urgency is particularly pointed regarding Judeans who are scattered abroad in the world. Uh, we need to review at this point the idea world. In the Greek, neither word that is translated world in our English Bibles meant the planet Earth as we think of it. And normally when we hear that word world today, we think of the planet Earth, since we are children of the space age and satellite photos of the Earth and so on. But they were not burdened with those kind of images. <laughs> so to the ancients to in the Greek language, the word world to them either meant the land or it meant the cosmos or the established order of things. And practically speaking, the known world to them, the known order of things, was the Roman world. And this is really the proper context in which preach the gospel to the whole world 
uh, within that generation is and should be properly understood. This does not mean that we have no obligation to share the good news of the kingdom of God with others, far from it. But most of us are not expected to drop our profession, uh, leave behind family members, and just start walking, uh, preaching as we go. This is not uh, expected of most of us, although some people you know, do that. Because there are Christians throughout the world, everyone should be focused primarily on teaching the good news in their area where they are planted. And, of course, sometimes we have great opportunities to help extend work in countries that um, are underprivileged or something, and we can help support it. In my experience, it's always much more cost-effective to support a native in that country than to send an American over to live in a foreign country and fly him back every year and so on. It's very expensive, but that's off our point. But we want, we're going to be observing here and talking a little bit before we go through these chapters, which I, I want to go through real quickly without a lot of comment, the historical travel narratives that the Great Commission was specific to that generation. It was tied into God fulfilling all of his promises to Israel before the destruction of the Judean nation and the temple in A.D. 70. So that's a, that was a lot to, to say. Does anyone have any thoughts, comments, or questions they'd like to throw in? You're struck. What's that? What was that called? Awe and something. You know, what, whatever we did. To, uh, Where to begin? Well, huh? I think that Christians argue is a, an issue. I think that's brought up sometimes over Paul and Barnabas. And uh, oh yes, uh, I mean that's a good point. Uh, we certainly have the text there to show an, as an example that Christians are not automatically. Uh, after baptism, immune from disagreements, spats, and things of that nature. Far from, we're still very much human as long as we are alive in these physical bodies. So that's an excellent point. Well, of course, the idea, too, that, uh, that is the missionary idea, that we have, we have all these mission organizations, and I think they probably teach that, their missionaries are part of the Great Commission, that they're doing an obligation that still, they're still instructed to do. And uh, in, in looking at the Bible, I don't quite, uh, I, I see the uh, uh, embarkation point there where the old was put away and the old covenant disappeared and was gone and fulfilled. And the question is then, are we still carrying out the Great Commission? You say no. What does this really mean as far as mission activities are concerned and commitment? I'm not sure exactly what it means. I'm saying that if we study the Bible in context and we understand the times in which the words were spoken and who they were spoken to, they were spoken to the disciples alive on the day of Pentecost after Christ's execution, death, burial, and resurrection, etc., and so that, that is the central issue today, dividing Christianity into dispensational or premillennial or Christian Zionism and traditional Christianity. You've put your finger right on it. That is the dividing issue. I agree. Well, well what you say, co- studying the Bible out of context? 
Yes, to take the, yeah. ta- taking the Bible out of context. Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem that has caused uh, most of the confusion and division. I, I certainly agree. So, if we want to pay our proper respect to the context, we see that the what is commonly called the Great Commission was specific to them at that time. I'm not saying that wipes out our obligation to uh, share the gospel of the kingdom with others. It does not. But you just need to look at it in context is all that I'm saying. Well, yeah, let, let me, let, let me, let, let me clarify that, that I agree with you that those words were definitely spoken to those people at that time specifically for their use and purpose. That, that should be, that is the difference. Today, the Christian Zionist argument is those words actually apply to everybody out into some future space uh, and, are, and are focused on Armageddon rather than on those people at that time. Oh, absolutely. They've taken the day of judgment that Jesus talked about in Luke 21, 21, and, and, and in hundreds of other places in the Bible, all the Old Testament prophecies that spoke of a day of judgment in Israel's last days, and they have transferred all that, or some of it, to you know a future literal battle of Armageddon and uh, another super judgment and so on. So that is, yeah, that is the travesty of modern uh, Bible interpretation greatly ravaging the context and the clear meaning of the Old Testament prophecies. I just got a new book today. It's, well, it's about a year old, but uh, it's one of Frank Viola's most recent books, and he wrote this with a different co-author who I'm not familiar with yet. But uh, on the back, the summary of the book is the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament, and yet Sadly, most Christians completely miss that connection, and they blindly go off reading the New Testament without realizing that connection and hopelessly miss the context of what they are reading. And uh, I think that that hits the nail right on the head. As we've gone through Acts, we've been trying to show how that every speaker in the book of Acts quotes numerous Old Testament prophecies and then demonstrates how those were fulfilled right there in their generation, in their day and time, which completely negates this modern end days madness of trying to uh, apply current events to these uh, Old Testament or New Testament prophecies. Sorry to slow you down and thank you. All right, so let's do what we're talking about doing here and look at a few of these prophecies. Isaiah 11, chapter 9, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So the holy mountain is an image of the restored kingdom of Israel. We call it the New Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the Temple as we study in the Gospel of John, the temple made of the living stones who are all believers, all of these images are talking about the same thing, the, the messianic kingdom that was uh, set up there in the days of Christ and the apostles. But at the time that this is set up, see, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. And we're going to see that in these next chapters of Acts. We're going to see the fascinating 
providence of God that through history has set these Judean synagogues in every major city of the Roman world. And over the past 100 years or so, before Paul gets there, more and more of the non-Israelite people, nearly all of whom speak Greek, so they'll be generically called Greeks, uh, Greek-speaking people, they have been coming to the Saturday or Sabbath assemblies of the Judeans to hear the Law and the Prophets read on a weekly basis. And so we have this huge ready-made audience, and we've already seen it in Acts 13, in Antioch of Syria, where the the, the base is for Paul's uh, work, that there were large numbers of God-fearing Gentiles who were already well acquainted with the Hebrew Scriptures and the prophecies because they had been attending the synagogue for years, perhaps uh, two or three generations, you know, we don't know. But we do know there were large numbers who were familiar and, and so God brought all of this together at exactly the right time in according with, with his eternal purpose and his plan. And we've seen that over and over again. We've seen no evidence in Acts that God's plan failed or was set aside. We've seen no apologies or explanations of the kingdom failing and having to be postponed. We're seeing words of power being preached with miracles to prove the word that has been spoken, and it is that the Christ has been anointed and is serving as priest and king at this time. Now, if we move on to Isaiah 52, we find a similar prophecy where it says, uh, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You see, you can't have a reign without a kingdom. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices, with their voices they will sing together. They shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. This is the regathering of Israel that we talked about back in Acts 3 the fulfillment of uh, the Valley of Dry Bones back in Ezekiel 37. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So we consistently see here that in the days when God will, will restore the kingdom to Israel, that the good news will be sent to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what Christ told them to do back in Acts 1. And there are allusions to this in a lot of Paul's letters, Colossians 1, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Romans 10, 15, they're all talking about this new creation, this new Jerusalem, and the fact that it's tied into taking the good news to the ends of the known world at that time. Okay, I talked a long time again. Any other comments or thoughts here? 
came to mind that Jesus talked of new wine and new wineskins. And if you try to take an, an old cloth and try to patch it to a new, it would just rent from it. You can't really patch the new onto the old. The old covenant with the new covenant. They're, they're two different entities. In, and yet the same Christ. And it's a progressive testament. And further, Mark, this has, of course, been tremendously complicated for us who try to teach these words and, and, and understand them ourselves, right? that this uh, usurper physical state, political state, has come along and stolen the very terms that we're talking about so that Israel is now the state of Israel. Jew is now the Jews who live in the state of Israel. We have all of these modern complications of that obstructed our understanding of these words to where it's almost impossible to separate in your minds the Old Testament use of the Israelites from the modern political state that is, of course, leading the chaos and bombing and destruction of the world today, or as a big part of it. I think well, it's called historical juxtapositioning. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's 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 definitely a, a war of words, a semantics. The meaning of words are so important, and you listen to people debating these things, and they each have different definitions, and so they're they're saying words, but they are not communicating. The one cannot understand the other because they're each using two totally different sets of definitions. We remember uh, that we looked at the end of Luke as an introduction to Acts. He is the first day after, or, or the day of his resurrection, he's telling the disciples, uh, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And again, we, we saw that repeated in Acts 1, and we've already uh, talked about that. So again, everything is proceeding according to plan, which is just uh, terrible for our dispensational friends who have been taught that the plan completely failed. We, we're not finding that. Here at all. We have seen that this kingdom is not a material nationalistic restoration of Jerusalem. I think that passage about wineskins that Leslie's referring to may be commenting on the fact that the restoration of Israel is not just a repeat of the old. It is something completely different that the two can't be mixed together because one was a carnal nationalistic kingdom and the new one is a universal spiritual kingdom. And you can't, you can't really you know, mix those two together. One's earthly, one's heavenly. Yeah. Um, what could be simpler than that? What a dilemma. <laughs> yeah. So the Samaritans have already been drawn in. You know, we've already passed that. The Samaritans are specifically mentioned in Acts 1 as part of the plan they, I, I left that out earlier. That was my mistake. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth. The Samaritans have already uh, been brought in. Jesus 
taught the parable of the Good Samaritan to where today no one really thinks of Samaritans as what they were, but they think them all as this Good Samaritan in this parable, and hospitals are named after him and so on. But that parable was really showing how the most defiled Israelite imaginable, which would have been a Samaritan, was still better if he had mercy on his neighbor than a priest or a Levite traveling up for service in the temple in Jerusalem and not wanting to lose their once-in-a-lifetime chance to serve by ceremonially defiling themselves by getting blood on themselves or something like that. So it's a great lesson to teach the true intent of the law and also to prepare the way for this great commission which will first restore all of Israel. And we need to think of Israel as a bunch of concentric circles uh, with God in the middle. And then you have the high priest who's the only one allowed to get close to God and he can only do that once a year if everything's exactly perfect. And then you have the priests and then you have the Levites and then you have the male Israelites in good standing. And then you'd have the women and then you'd have the foreigners and the eunuchs and the deformed and anyone who was disqualified from being a citizen of Israel in good standing, you know, out there. But they're they're separated by ever greater rings of separation from God. And the Samaritans were were way out there. They were still considered part of Israel. They followed the the law of Moses, but they were a very a contaminated and foul remnant of Israel. But even they were looked at as better than a foreigner. I mean, it didn't cause a revolution in Jerusalem when the Samaritans were converted, but when Cornelius was converted, there was almost a riot and a lynching of, uh, of Peter when he got back to report there. So, Samaritans are part of this too. But so far... Everything has gone exactly according to plan here. Okay, let's read a little bit in 16. Read 1 through 8, please. And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees, which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, They were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. 
and passing through Mysia, they came down to Troas. All right. So thank you. So they went back to the area where they were back in Acts 13, which is the southern part of Turkey. This is getting fairly close to where Paul is from in Tarsus, uh, which is a little bit further east. But uh, they went back to these places where they had already had uh, large audiences of Judeans and God-fearing Greeks. Timothy was probably one of this audience. He had a mixed heritage with a Judean mother and a non-Judean father, a Greek-speaking father. And he had a good report Paul took and circumcised him. And, and again, we're going to see this, which is quite different from what most of us have been taught, that all of the Judean Christians zealously continued to follow the law of Moses, even though the new covenant was now in effect. They are still going to systematically follow the law, not as a means of salvation or being reconciled to God, but as a means of reaching out to and trying to save the righteous remnant that still are within the Judean people who do not yet believe that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. And so this is uh, just another example of that where Timothy is circumcised here. So I don't believe Paul had Timothy circumcised out of fear or terror or a misunderstanding of the value of the law of Moses compared to the new covenant. But I believe this was part of the systematic and intentioned response of the Judean Christians to continue to observe the law faithfully so that they might have a good witness to their brethren, the Judean people. And Paul writes about this specifically in the letter to Roman Gentiles, how that even the Gentiles in the synagogue should not eat so offensively as to drive away the Judeans who have not yet believed upon Jesus Christ. So, interesting there. They passed along the results of the Jerusalem Council, as we saw this was a cause for great rejoicing to these God-fearing Greeks because they were no longer separated from God by all these rings of separation that existed under the Old Covenant. They were now in the inner circle. The veil had been broken, uh, rent at the death of Jesus Christ, and that symbolized all of those rings of separation were rent asunder, and all of every nation now had equal access into the Holy of Holies. And this, of course, was cause for great jealousy to the Judeans. But this news was very exciting, would have been very exciting to the Greeks, and it would definitely be news to a lot of the Judeans. So they established the churches in their faith or confidence, is the word I like to use, uh, in place of faith, their conviction of God's truth, and they increased in number daily. So uh, the growth here is just uh, astounding. So they'd gotten through this whole region, They turned to go west into Asia, which would be the western part of Turkey today, but they were not allowed to go that way. And so they come down to Troas, which is on the northwest coast of Turkey, right across or close to the the Bosphorus, the the small straits that uh, separate Turkey from Europe or Greece, 
well, Turkey, I think, still has land on both sides. Uh, and then you run into Greece over there. Any thoughts or comments on that? I'm going to suggest uh, this is a major break here at verse 9 where we cross over into Europe for the first time. So I'm going to suggest that we break here. I'll have a few more comments about the Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled uh, as we go through these. And then we'll proceed on uh, with the uh, crossing into modern-day Europe next time. All right. Great. Well, thanks, Mark. That was a good spot to stop, and we'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.